Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, thanks, Wes. And yeah, good morning again. Great to see you guys. Good to be back after uh, being on sabbatical for the month of October. I just want to say uh, thank you to the elders. Also, thank you to the staff uh, for picking up a lot of the things that kind of uh, got left on the side as I took the month off, and they had an opportunity to pick some of those things up. And so thank you, staff, for extending yourself in that way and uh, showing me the grace that was needed over this past month. You know, uh, I want to thank you also for those of you who sent notes and cards and text messages and emails and gave us little gifts and those kinds of things. Those were really encouraging. And a lot of you said you were praying for me during this past month, and so I certainly appreciate that. Uh, I will say, uh, you know, I'm going to give you a breakdown of the entire thing, the ha- entire month and all that happened, but I will say this, is that a lot of fruit came from this past month in a lot of ways. Uh, what I anticipated and had hoped for and had prayed for, uh, which was, I guess I could just put it in general, a time to uh, refocus and a time uh, to really recharge, which I think was needed uh, for me personally over the past couple of years have been, have been difficult in some ways. And so this past month allowed me to be able to step back and refocus on some things, which I think were really necessary. And so I'm not going to go into all the detail now. We'll talk about those things maybe as we go in the weeks to come. Maybe we might even talk a little bit more about that as we go here. But we got a lot to get to today because we are getting back into the series that we started back in August, our series called Revealed. Uh, which is on, of course, the book of Revelation. You know, we wanted to continue the series all the way through the month of October, but we couldn't actually get anybody to to preach on Sunday mornings if we were telling them that they had to preach through the book of Revelation. I can't imagine why that would be true uh, and why it happened that way, but uh, we had to put it on hold for the month of October, and so we're picking up here this morning. Now that I'm back, we get to get back into it. And since it's been five weeks since we were in Revelation, I think it's probably a good idea for us to do a little bit of review If you remember, we started out at the beginning of the book talking about the fact that Revelation is a book that was written uh, by John while he was on the Isle of uh, the island of Patmos, and he had been exiled there as a result of persecution that he had suffered under the Roman Empire. And he's there writing to the churches, or writing as a result of a, uh, a revelatory or a revelation vision that he gets from God. And as he was uh, there with the early first century Christians, they were, of course, under Roman rule. And as we talked about, the Romans weren't big fans of people who didn't consider Caesar to be your ultimate lord, Caesar to be your ultimate king. And the Christians of the first century had the audacity to say that Jesus was Lord and Jesus was our king over Caesar. And so as a result, they experienced a lot of threats of persecution to their faith. And in John's case, of course, because he was one of the leaders of the early church and one of the teachers, he was very visible and ended up finding himself in persecution on the Isle of Patmos. And so he was exiled there. And what we know then as the book of Revelation was written in a form of an apocalyptic, prophetic letter. And each one of those three components or parts of this letter have uh, an important piece to them. Uh, this book is, a, is a, a apocalyptic in the sense that the majority of the book is John's account of a vision of an apocalypse, which of course we said doesn't mean end of the world, but means revelation. So it's an apocalyptic vision that John gets about God's perspective on the way things are happening in the world. And so we've described it this way. It's like a peek behind the curtain to be able to see what God sees uh, in the world that we're living in right now, and where, human, where this thing that we call human history is going. And so as we're looking at John's apocalyptic vision, really, that starts uh, in, in chapter 4, so it, it somewhere in there, we begin to see the heavenly perspective of what God is doing, the heavenly realities that are going on behind the world that we live in, and ultimately where human history is going, where God's taking it all. So it's apocalyptic, but it's also prophetic. This vision that John is given is not just for information, it's not just for inspiration, it's actually instruction. It's designed to instruct those who are reading it on the way that they should live as a result of seeing what God sees and understanding uh, from God's perspective, the way that he is taking everything in the world that we live in. In other words, it's a calling as a result of seeing this vision. And that prophetic function has a way of challenging us to live in the world today according to the heavenly realities that were shown in the book of Revelation. 
And so by faith, we're called to live a certain way. The prophetic nature of this book helps us to see that even though it may seem like sometimes God doesn't see what's going on, sometimes God doesn't care about what's going on in this world, maybe sometimes we may feel like God doesn't care about what's going on in my life, at the same time what we see is that God actually has a plan for it all. He has a purpose for it all. He's taking it somewhere and he's calling us in the midst of even those times when we don't see where he is to follow him by faith. That's the prophetic function of this. And then finally, the book of Revelation is a letter. And like any other letter, it has an author and it has recipients. And in this case, the recipients are, the immediate recipients are defined or or, or pictured for us as the seven churches of what was known as Asia at the time under the Roman Empire in the first century, what is modern day Turkey. Seven actual churches in seven real historical cities. That's what the book of Revelation is addressed to. These recipients, these seven recipients. And of course, as we just said earlier, these are churches and these are Christians who are experiencing a temptation to walk away from the faith, to walk away from following Jesus. For a couple of reasons, really. Of course, the cultural pressure that's around them, living as a Roman, living in the Roman way as many of their neighbors did around them, uh, meant walking away from Jesus, meant compromising their faith. And of course, the other threat was the impending threat of persecution by the Roman Empire because they were saying that Jesus was Lord instead of Caesar. And so, with all that in mind, then, um, as, as a bit of a refresher, let's talk about the four chapters that we've looked at so far. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 5 this morning. We've gone through four chapters, four of the 22 chapters that are contained in the book of Revelation. When we open up the first chapter, one thing that we saw is we saw this vision, the beginning of the vision that John is given as he's on the island of Patmos. And the thing that we see is that this vision is focused on the main character of the book, who is Jesus himself. We see Jesus, John sees Jesus walking among the churches in Asia, the seven churches of Asia, dressed in a white robe, and he becomes from that point on the focus of the entire book. And then in chapters two and three, we see Jesus' words to those seven churches, what are known as the seven messages to the churches of Revelation. And then in chapter four, this is when the vision makes a big switch from kind of like an earthly focus to where John says that he's taken up into heaven and he sees and he, begin, he begins to see what's going to take place for the rest of the book of Revelation, which is a vision of heaven. And he starts out in chapter four by seeing the throne room of God. And we're presented with all these images and all these things that uh, that, that, that all these things that add to the worship and the grandeur and the majesty of God in the throne room of heaven. Which brings us then to chapter 5. And as we get into chapter 5 of Revelation this morning, we're going to get into one of the most important parts of the book, especially as it relates to seeing Jesus in this book. Now, if you've been with us through this series, you know we've made a big point to say, when you read the book of Revelation, you have to see Jesus in it. Because he is the main point of this. And I think it's important for us to say this about the book of Revelation because in many cases, you may have noticed, people people tend to make the book of Revelation about all kinds of other things other than Jesus. Uh, when, uh, When Wes and I sat down at the beginning of this series to plan out this series, Uh, Wes asked me the question that uh, we always ask when we start out a series, which is, what do we ultimately want our church to get out of this series when they're done? In other words, what are the takeaways of this series when we're done? And I I got off on all these things. I start talking about, you know, like biblical interpretation and practical theology, and I get into this discussion about like apocalyptic literature, and I'm talking about all these things. And uh, by the way, way, here's one thing that I think Wes is learning. Maybe he knows this and maybe he just does it for his own amusement. But when you ask me an open-ended question like that, get ready to sit for about 20 minutes and just listen because things are just going to come out. And that was coming out, especially like this. And after like 20 minutes of me just going on and on, droning on and on, I look up and Wes's eyes are just glazed over. He has started taking notes at the beginning, but he he was well past taking notes. And he's looking at me with his eyes glazed over and I realize, okay, how can I break this down simply? And I said, I guess what I really want people to realize about the book of Revelation in the end is that it's about Jesus. And and I don't know that everybody realizes that when they think about the book of Revelation, that the first thing that comes to mind is this book is about Jesus. And I say that because in my experience, uh, people often believe the book of Revelation is about all kinds of other things. Uh, Things like the end of the world, the rapture, the antichrist, the mark of the beast, the tribulation, the new world order, the judgment, and go on and on and on. 
And if you were to ask somebody, what is the book of Revelation all about? My question would be, how long does it take them to actually get to a place where they say it's about Jesus? How many things above Jesus do they begin to talk about before they actually get to Jesus? Because the reality of this is, yeah, some of those things are in the book of Revelation. A couple of them are mentioned once or twice. Some of them aren't even in the book of Revelation, like like the Antichrist, actually not even mentioned in the book of Revelation. Yet when you ask people, some people about the book of Revelation, they'll say it's about the Antichrist. Well, it seems to be a problem if we're mentioning something that isn't even in the book as something more important or central than the one who is actually highlighted as the main character who is Jesus himself. And I think the, the entry or the the introduction of the book of revelation gets us to a place where we begin to see from the beginning this book is all about jesus and here's the thing is that we're not saying that this book is all about jesus in a sunday school sense kind of answer you know what i mean by that i used to do this when i was a kid i i wasn't really good at paying attention in sunday school when i was younger and so often when the teacher would be teaching the lesson and then the teacher would ask me Jay, what is this story about? I would always just say Jesus, right? Because in reality, <laughs> right, that's the answer to 80% of the, of the, you know, of the stories, and it should be, it's actually the answer to 100% of the stories, and so I couldn't actually be wrong, right? But here, here's the thing, is that when we're talking about the book of Revelation being about Jesus, one of the things that we're going to begin to see this morning as we get into Revelation 5 is being able to answer why is it about Jesus, and why does that matter? And so as we look at Revelation chapter 5 this morning, that's going to help us see and answer that question more clearly. In other words, it's at the crux of why we are actually studying this book in the first place. What we're going to see in this chapter this morning, it's hugely important. And as we talked about when we were in chapter 4 about a month ago, chapters 4 and 5 in Revelation really go together. They almost go together as one unit. Um, The first thing we see, we're we're still in the throne room in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 4, we get what John, what John sees as a theophany, which is simply a vision of God. In chapter 5, we're going to get a Christophany, which is a vision of Christ in the very same setting that John is in. We're going to see how similar these things are. We see a lot of the same characters, the elders, the creatures who are gathered before the throne, a lot of the same elements, and of course the same setting, some of the same language. But even more than the same language and the same setting, we see very similar theology that's being communicated here as well. So with that in mind, let's dive into Revelation chapter 5. We're going to be going through the entire chapter today, which is just 14 verses. Um, But I would encourage you, it's going to be up on the screen, but I would encourage you, if you have a Bible or even if you have the Bible app on your phone, please pull that out because we're going to be referring to some things that we would like you to just, or I would like you to continue to to, to have in front of you as we refer to them throughout uh, this morning. And those won't always be up on the screen. So here we go. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And John writes this, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And as I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Wow, what a scene, huh? As we join John again in his vision, we find again ourselves in that same place where chapter four left off. He's in the throne room of heaven And as we said, there's a lot of things that are kind of uh, consistent between chapters 4 and chapter 5, a lot of things that are repeated here, same setting, same kind of creatures who are present there, those kinds of things. But what is different in this case is that there are two things that show up, two images, two symbols that show up, two representatives that show up, in this case that makes it different. And immediately it's those two things that John focuses in on and becomes really the focus of this entire chapter. They're tied together And they also communicate to us a central aspect of the message of what this is all getting at. And those two things are, of course, the scroll and the lamb. And we're going to talk about each of these images separately in terms of who they are, what they mean, and the significance of it, of it all. But let's talk about how this plays out first. And what's interesting about this scene is that it does play out in in some way, almost like a a, a short story. In other words, we've got a plot. We've got um, a setting that takes place, right? We've got a protagonist, we've got a conflict, and we've got a resolution. And it all happens in this tight chapter within these 14 verses, really in the first half of this chapter. But the first thing that John sees there is he sees a scroll. And the scroll is in the right hand of God who is on his throne, which communicates to us, of course, just like any king who is on his throne, the right hand is the, is the hand of power and authority. And so we see that, that, that scroll actually in God's right hand on his throne representing power and authority, which intrigues us about this scroll. We're meant to ask, what exactly is written on that scroll? Because we're told that it's written front and back and all within it, but we're not told exactly what it says. And so there's a lot of focus put on the scroll, and the whole scene is meant to focus our attention on it to begin with. The natural question then that follows is, what exactly is written on that? Well, we're told a few things about it. First of all, there's writing on the front and back, and that it's sealed with seven seals. And adding to the importance of this and the significance of it, the anticipation of what is being written on that, is the way that the creatures around are reacting to it. First you hear an angel announce who is worthy to open the scroll. And then you see John's reaction, right? John begins to weep loudly, as he says, because the scroll initially is unable to be opened. And so let's pause for a moment here. To this to this point in the scene, we aren't told what's written on it. We don't know exactly what it is or why, or why it's in the right hand of God. But we are told that there is this kind of powerful announcement about it. John's weeping uncontrollably because it can't be opened. So we're told that it, it can't be opened because it has to be opened in particular by someone or in some special way. So it's a special scroll that is sealed in a special way that has to be opened in some particular special way, which adds even more impact to this. And the fact that John is weeping because it can't be opened tells us that there's something good in this. This is something important. This is something maybe even essential. All the pomp and circumstance around it communicates the fact that it has to be something significant. And so before John can answer that question for us in terms of what's written on the scroll, the scene switches quickly. Because as John is weeping, almost kind of as this man without hope, weeping bitterly, weeping loudly, you get this picture of John just kind of crouched down, weeping because he feels like there's no hope. An elder taps him on the shoulder or grabs him by the shoulder and says, there is one who can open the scroll. And the one who can open the scroll is identified by three titles, all taken from the Old Testament. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, and finally, he's identified as the Lamb. Now, what's interesting about this, of course, they all point to Jesus, but those first two titles are the titles that are announced about Jesus by the elder. In other words, they are the the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David. What's important to notice about both those phrases is those are Old Testament messianic royalty phrases. They would be something that you would expect to be announced in a heavenly throne room to one who was walking into, as the king, walking into the throne room. 
And as one of the elders say this to John, you've got to imagine that this is probably comforting John. He's thinking to himself, oh good, the powerful Lion of Judah, right? the eternal King of David's line is coming to rescue us. Which is true, but it's also not the full story. Because there's this moment of kind of dramatic tension that happens here between what John hears and then what he turns to see. He hears these messianic titles, these titles of royalty about Jesus, and then he turns to see Jesus represented as what? A lamb who was slain. Not a lion, not an apex predator, not a king who has a crown on his head with a scepter in his hand built on or bent on conquering, but he sees a lamb, domesticated prey, who was slain. And from that point on, that vision, that characterization of Jesus dominates the rest of this scene. It's how the creatures and the angels and those who are gathered around the throne begin to sing. They sing about the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb who was slain is the one who goes and grabs the scroll from the right hand of God on the throne. As we see in chapter 6, it's going to be the Lamb who was slain who opens the seals of that scroll. And in, in many ways, right, this is kind of surprising to us. And if we're wondering why Jesus is seen as a slain land here in this place, the worship of the creatures, what they sing in particular, gives us insight into why it is that the focus is on Jesus as the slain lamb. Have you, it's kind of like the voiceover in a movie. Have you ever watched a movie where uh, all of a sudden a narrator kicks in in an important scene in the movie? You know that if you've watched enough movies, right, what that narrator or that voiceover is communicating to you is that, first of all, this is probably a scene that's confusing, so we want to make sure you understand it and you get it as a movie watcher. And then secondly, this is probably a really important scene in terms of the plot line of the entire movie. You really need to understand and get what's going on here in order to make sense of the rest of what's happening. I think that's what's happening here in chapter 5. When you look at the words that are being sung by those who are around the, the throne, they're saying, you were slain and and by your blood you ransomed people for God, for every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And so we get this understanding of the reason that the, the slain lamb is the one who is, uh, who, who is taking center stage here, who is, who, is, who is focused on in all this, who is praised and who is worshipped, is because it is by his death, by his being slain as the lamb of God, that opens up the rest of the story for us. It opens up the rest of, really, the vision of Revelation as well. Now, before we get too far, let's talk about this scroll for, for a minute, because it is the slain lamb and the fact that he is slain that allows him to open this scroll. What exactly is the scroll, and what's its purpose? Well, we're told again, it's written on front and back, sealed with seven seals. Both of those things, of course, communicate completeness. Written front and back where it doesn't seem like there's any empty space at all. Every space on that scroll is occupied by some word. It's full. And then secondly, it's sealed by seven seals, which we know in the book of Revelation, we've talked about before, the number seven represents wholeness or completeness. And so we get this picture of this scroll that's being sealed, that's been sealed by these seals, much like uh, how ancient kings would seal letters or decrees or even covenants. Maybe you've seen this in a movie where they get like hot wax and they fold over like a document and then they close it up by that hot wax and then the king would put like his signet ring on it as a mark of his authority, as a mark of his power, as a mark of his promise to do everything that's contained within that document. So whatever's written in that document are the king's words, they're by the king's decree, they're by the king's power and authority, and the king, by putting his signet ring in that wax, in that, uh, in that melted wax, is a way of guaranteeing that everything that is said in here, I will abide by. I'm promising uh, to abide by this. And so if you take that picture, like a signet ring seal, these seven seals where the king, who is God this, in this case, commits himself to what is written on that scroll, what is it exactly then can we say is written on this scroll? Well, I think it clearly represents God's plan of redemption and salvation. I think it represents, in other words, what we would call the gospel of Jesus. It is God's promises to redeem and God's promises to save his people and his creation. It is God's promises to bring everything to a desired end, whereas we get to, at the end of the book, like in Revelation 21, we see that God has restored the new heavens and the new earth, and that he has redeemed and given eternal life to all who are with him. 
It's the fulfillment of everything that he's promised since Genesis chapter 3. That there would be a human being who would crush the head of the serpent. Sin and evil in this world and bring salvation to all who believe in him. And of course, that's why Jesus is the only one who is declared worthy. He is the righteous human being who is worthy to open the scroll and set off the plan of redemption in the world. Now, as we then follow the song and the narration, we see how Jesus did this. He did this by dying. By laying down his life as the one who was slain, and as a result of being slain, he, becomes, he provides a ransom to buy, back those who were, uh, to buy back those who were in bondage and to bring freedom of salvation to those who follow him as the slain lamb. And later in Revelation chapter 14, Christians are described as the one who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And I think this is important to realize because God chooses to do this and God chooses to present this not as a roaring lion or as a conquering king who comes in to defeat his enemies, but as a meek lamb, first and foremost, who was a prey that was so weak he was killed by his enemies so that he might save his enemies. It was the lamb who was worthy because this is how God chose to reconcile rebellious creation to himself, including you and me, by his sacrificial love to die at the hands of his enemies so that he might save his enemies. And then later, then when we get to Revelation chapter 14, and Christians are described as the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, Revelation chapter 5 brings back to us this image of what it means for us to follow the Lamb who was slain. You know, this is one of the most hopeful chapters, the most hopeful scenes in all of the Bible. But it comes to us probably in a way that we might not expect, in a different angle that we might, than we might expect. It throws us for a loop because hope is accomplished through this lamb who was slain. How does God bring us freedom? How does God conquer and bring victory to us? How do we know we can trust him in whatever situation we face? It is through the sacrificed lamb who is also our king. Our king, our representative, is a lamb who has been slain. The ultimate image of weakness, which if we'll admit, let's be honest, we often have trouble with, right? We often have trouble with in a world where weakness is not prioritized, where weakness is not even something that is seen as a virtue. In fact, in many ways in the culture that we live in and out of our human nature, we want to always project strength. We want to be strong. We want to be in control. We want to follow the one who looks more like the root of David, the eternal king or the lion of the tribe of Judah, more than we want to follow the lamb who was slain. And look, we aren't alone in that kind of perspective. If you look in the Gospels, the 12 disciples often had trouble with this as well, especially Peter. When you read the Gospels, one thing you'll see is that the disciples always loved when Jesus would perform a miracle. They loved these great demonstrations of power that Jesus would display. They loved when he would equate himself with the messianic kingship of David. They loved those kinds of those times when he confronted the Pharisees and showed his wisdom over the religious leaders. But the times that they had trouble were the times when he seemed to love their enemies. Those times when he seemed to, when he showed what they believe was weakness. And one of the places we see that most famously is in Matthew chapter 16. This is a time where Peter confronts Jesus about Jesus saying that he's going to the cross. You may know the story, but it comes out of Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. And it says this, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Look, imagine this scene for a minute. right? Jesus predicts his crucifixion. And here's Peter, who has already declared that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And yet, he has the audacity in the moment to rebuke Jesus, probably publicly in front of at least the other 12 disciples, and to say, you will not do this. This will not happen to you. Can you imagine that scene for a minute? 
I mean, Peter had to. Peter probably lost his mind for a moment because he was so angry. We'll talk about why he seems to be so angry here in a minute. But the fact is, he confronts and rebukes Jesus, and Jesus, in the same way, responds very boldly, and says probably one of the most bold statements he says to anybody in all the Gospels, outside of maybe calling the religious leaders a brood of vipers. He says, "Get behind me, Satan!" Now, can you imagine that for a moment? The Son of God looking at you and saying. Get behind me, Satan. Like, that's a bad day. No matter how you cut it, that's a bad day for Peter. You don't come back from that easily. But he says, get behind me, Satan. Because you have in mind the things of man and not the things of God. Let's think about this for a minute. Why is it that Peter reacted the way that he did? And I want to put this out there as well, is that in many cases, Peter is speaking for the 12 disciples. He often fulfills that role in the Gospels, the guy who speaks for what everybody else, says what everybody else is thinking. And not only the disciples, but often what we're thinking, and what we may be thinking as we're reading through the Gospels, right? So he's speaking in some ways for all of us. But what's his issue there? I mean, he obviously loves Jesus. He believes in Jesus. He's even called Jesus the son of the living God to this point in Jesus' ministry. At this point, he's left his entire life behind to follow Jesus in his earthly ministry. But here's the thing, is that Peter, while Peter loves Jesus as king, he loves him as Messiah, he loves him as the Son of God, what he doesn't love as much is the crucified Jesus. And it's because Peter has a way of thinking that, uh, in terms of the way that God is supposed to work and what it means to follow that, the, the Messiah, and that idea, that perspective has no room for the cross. And probably what makes Peter so upset, angry enough to rebuke Jesus in the moment, is that he realizes that if that happens to Jesus, then that is going to destroy the plan that he had for his own life in following Jesus. We know that a couple of the other disciples had asked Jesus, Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom? Because that is really what they had in mind, to be honest. Right? And Peter may be representing that. What he's realizing is that following Jesus might not lead to the life that he had planned for himself. A life where he could be comfortable. A life where he could have political and religious influence. A life where he might even be as rich and powerful as anyone there because he would be one of the inner circle of the Messiah when he comes in glory and overthrows the Roman Empire and rules from the city of Jerusalem. And one of the things about Peter that we see in the Gospels repeatedly, of course, is that he speaks for a lot of us. With that in mind, notice that what Jesus does with Peter. He has to bring Peter to a place where he humbles him. Again, he tells him, get behind me, Satan. He doesn't sit down with Peter and say, Peter, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that. He doesn't sit down with Peter and reason with him. He doesn't sit down with Peter and compromise. He doesn't say, you know what, Peter, you got a good point there. I mean, I thought this was the way that we were going to bring about the kingdom. I thought, you know, maybe I was supposed to go to the cross. But, you know, you bring up a good point there, Right? Maybe I, I shouldn't be. No, he, he confronts him. He rebukes him. He brings him to a place of shocking humility where he says, get behind me, Satan. Your thoughts aren't just wrong. Your thoughts aren't just misguided. They're demonic thoughts. And he equates them with the things of man versus the things of God. And then he follows it up with this statement. If we're confused about, okay, what are the things of man versus the things of God? What is it exactly that Jesus is calling out? Matthew chapter 26, verses 24 through 26 are the following verses. This is what Jesus does. He turns to his disciples and he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now this is a quote that many of us are familiar with, both inside and outside the church. Um, in some ways it's become a bit of a cliche. You'll hear people say uh, this in reference to like a long period of suffering or even just a minor inconvenience, right? Well, that's my cross to carry. You hear people say that before? So I've got a difficult coworker at work, but that's just my cross to carry. Or my teenager's acting up at home and that's just my cross to carry. I don't want to shame you if you've said that or you say that, right? Everybody says that. But here's the thing is that I don't think that that's exactly what Jesus meant when he was talking about denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and following him. Here's the thing is that those who were hearing him, the disciples who heard him say that, they would have immediately connected it, as well as anybody in the, in, in the first century Roman Empire. They would have immediately connected the cross with what he is saying here. Because 
The cross only had one purpose, and that was to kill the person who was hanging on it. There's only one function for a cross. There's only one reason that you carry your cross. It's to take it up that hill and to die on it. And so again, Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And look, Jesus isn't saying this to be shocking or to be punitive. He doesn't take delight in making us suffer to pay the price to follow him. When he says you must take up your cross and follow me, it's like any other time that God speaks to us. First of all, we have to realize that what God is saying to us and what Jesus is saying to us here is true. And secondly, that that truth is for our own good. That even when that truth doesn't look like, even when that truth is difficult to hear and difficult to take, I mean, it had to be difficult for Peter to take in that moment. It's still true. And secondly, that that truth is meant for our good, even though it may not look like it in the moment. And so when he looks at the disciples and he says, pick up your cross and follow me, it's probably the last thing they wanted to do in terms of how they understood what following the Messiah meant. But this is Jesus drawing a line in the sand saying, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it looks like to follow the lamb who was slain. And look, it's often difficult to trust God's way of doing this. We don't intuitively trust the way of the cross. The way of the cross violates everything this world teaches us that is important and wants to reinforce in our lives. The way of the cross is humbling. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. We may lose in this world according to how the world marks wins and losses if we follow the way of the cross. We may be treated like a second-class citizen in order to really love people well. That's sacrificial love. Sometimes that's what it takes. You may have your reputation and your comfort and your security taken away in this world so that you can follow the slain lamb. A slain lamb holds no power or no authority in this world. But in God's economy, the lamb who is Jesus holds all power and authority in the end. And this is the message for the first century Christians as they're receiving this, as they're asking themselves, is it worth it to follow Jesus? I've got another easy way to uh, kind of compromise and syncretize my faith in, uh, in the Roman culture. And is it really worth having to deal with all the persecution that I'm facing? But picking up our cross means that our lives need to be laid down. The cross has one purpose. It's the place to come and die. And so Jesus invites us to the cross and he says to us, you must come and die. Let me explain how this looks in, uh, with the time that we have left, kind of from my own life. Um, and trying to work this out over 20 years of, of following Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, was the first verse that I memorized uh, in Scripture when I became a Christian over 20 years ago. We'll put that up on the screen. And it says, it says this, and you guys can, we'll see if I can still remember it. But it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, him, who lo who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, here's the thing. I'm, I'm really glad that that just happened to be the first verse that I memorized. Because I've been trying to learn how to do that verse for the last 20 plus years every single day, and I feel like I'm going to continue learning that for the rest of my life. And here's the key to all of this. This is the phrase in particular, it is no longer I who live. I think this summarizes discipleship in Jesus very clearly. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And it's a challenge, it's a process, it's a calling to live that out every single day. It's not just a statement it's an invitation to a process. It's an invitation to a lifelong journey. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Fully grasping that and fully living that out, what does it mean to die every single day? You may know that in Luke's account, Luke quotes Jesus in the same situation, but he adds to the end of it, you must pick up your cross and die daily to follow me. It's a continual thing. And so in order to love like God loves, you have to die. You have to die in order to love like God loves. You have to die to yourself. You may need to die to your rights to love your neighbor properly. You may need to die to your comfort to love your family properly. You certainly need to die to your own self-righteousness and your pride and your sin in order to love God. 
This is a constant and daily and momentary dying. It is being able to say in every circumstance, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So maybe, so what, what does this look like? Well, maybe I'm at a restaurant and the server is slow and not paying as much attention as I think that she should be paying attention, uh, not paying as much attention to me as I think that she should. Well, in that moment, I might feel frustration. I might feel a little bit of anger. I might be uh, tempted to call over the manager and talk to him about the server that has not been serving me well. But I might also recognize that that's an opportunity to die to myself. It's an opportunity to die to my frustration and to love and serve a person created in God's image who, for all I know, might be having a really, really tough day. Maybe because she just found out that a relative died or she's having marital problems or financial problems. And instead of lashing out or treating her as less than human or asking to talk to the manager, I might instead allow that to be an opportunity for me to die to myself so that Christ might live in me. And maybe that means I pray for her, I offer to pray for her, or I give her an extra large tip even though the service is awful. Maybe a friend or coworker posts something on social media that's different than what I believe. It's just a hypothetical. Stuff doesn't actually necessarily happen in real life. But my instinct is to post something angry or sarcastic in response or to educate them with the truth. That's a moment to say it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And how do I display the slain lamb, maybe to a friend or coworker who doesn't know Jesus yet, or certainly to other friends that I have in social media that don't know Jesus that will read the comments that I'm going to post there? Is what I'm saying, is how I'm responding, whether it's social media, in conversations, whatever it may be, a way that's displaying the lamb who was slain? And now how do I do that in my marriage, with my kids, at work, with my friends, and my community? Constantly die to myself so that I can live Christ. Also, I like to say this, there's not a, I don't think there's a husband or a father in this room I've never talked to a husband or a father who would ever, who, who's ever said anything other than, I would die for my spouse, I would die for my wife, I would die for my kids if it came to that. Which is great. It's noble, that's important, that's what should be done. That's exactly how you should feel as a husband or a father. But the reality of that is the, the odds of that actually happening and taking place are probably pretty low. But I'm glad you would do it if the situation arose. Here's the thing. I can guarantee that there will be several opportunities this coming week where you have an opportunity to die to yourself for your spouse, for your family, for your kids, for your friends, for your, work, for your coworkers, for your community. And what is certain is that you will have several of those opportunities in those moments to show that Christ lives in me, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And how will we respond in those moments? Because those moments have the potential to impact souls for eternity. Even in the small things, and look, these things may seem like trivial moralisms depending on how you look at them, but here's the thing. These decisions are forming your soul in every moment. A decision to say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the crux of discipleship. If you can get that down, that's what that means to follow Jesus. If you can repeatedly just say that to yourself throughout the day, like here's an opportunity that I have. It's a small opportunity to die to myself and to follow Jesus, to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Because if you can't die to the small things, you probably won't die to the big things either. This is the choice that we have to really follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and the big things and the small things. And we can do it because he was slain on our behalf. This morning, as we, as we, as we respond, uh, we're going to respond to this vision of the Lamb who was slain from Revelation chapter 5, uh, by taking an opportunity to come to the communion table. Communion elements are located uh, throughout the room here, and in just a moment I'm going to release you to go and to grab those elements. We'll kind of instruct you here in a minute. But the imagery of the slain lamb in Revelation 5 is striking because it's a familiar image in the Bible. Going all the way back to before the Exodus, really in the book of Exodus, while Israel was still in captivity in Egypt. Of course, the ten plagues that were sent, the tenth plague was what was known as the plague of the firstborn. Uh, the judgment of the firstborn. And during that time, God told Israel to slay a lamb. 
and to put its blood over the doorpost outside their home so that it would be a marker of the fact that they are God's people and that it would be a covering so that the angel of death would pass over that house and not enact judgment um, on that home. And since that time, of course, uh, the Jewish people have celebrated Passover every year to remember God's deliverance through the blood of the slain lamb. That image is picked up throughout Scripture, and it's picked up here again in Revelation chapter 5. You may know that when Jesus established the communion meal with the disciples and when he established it for the church that we're about to engage in here this morning, um, at the time they were celebrating the Passover meal. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29 says this, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. During the Passover meal at the time, there were four different cups of wine that each participant in the the meal would would partake in during the meal throughout the at different times uh, throughout the meal, to remember God's deliverance of Israel during the Exodus. The third cup in particular was the most important cup. It was called the cup of blessing or the cup of redemption because it represented the blood of the Passover lamb. This is the cup, the third cup, that Jesus holds up during the Passover meal and says to the disciples, this is my blood of the covenant. And as he says that to them, he's identifying himself as the true and final Passover lamb who covers us and delivers us by his sacrifice, by his blood. And I don't know what you need to bring to a place this morning where you can say it is no longer I who live, but bring it to the table this morning. That's the nature of coming to the communion table. It's both a table of death, but it's a table of life. It's a table where life comes out of death. And in taking the elements, it's a physical reminder of the death of Jesus. And so as we lay down and say, as we lay down what we come to the table with, our burdens, our sins, our doubts, our anxieties, our fears, whatever they may be, we are saying it is no longer I who live, and as we take those elements, it's a physical representation of a spiritual reality that I am taking on the life of Christ. I have taken on the life of Christ in me. It is Christ who lives in me. And so as we release you to go to the tables here, I'm just going to pray for us for a moment. Um, and then after I'm done praying, please help yourself, self-serve this morning for the communion elements. Grab those elements. The band's going to play for us, and as the band is playing, you take the elements whenever you're ready to do it. I won't come back up here and lead us through it all. We've already kind of done that piece, but on your own time and kind of in your own space, maybe you want to gather with others, maybe you're just on your own, but you're bringing something to the table saying, Lord, it is no longer I who live, but I'm drinking this and taking this bread as a representation of the fact that Christ lives in me. It's a spiritual reality of who we are. That's what this table represents. It is the Lamb's table. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning knowing that um, the call uh, to follow um, is a gracious call in the end. It's difficult. Father, there are things that we have to face in our lives when it means to lay down some things. There are things that we have to be honest with ourselves about when we come to you and say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Um, But I pray that you would give us the faith, uh, you would give us the courage, uh, you would give us uh, the vision to be able to see what those things are that we need to lay down. Uh, It's so easy uh, in the course of our lives uh, to find ourselves in a place where it has been a long time since we truly depended on you as the one who is our joy, as the one who is our treasure, as the one who we truly follow wherever you go. If we're honest, many times we follow at a distance. But Lord, you have told us in this case that we are people who are marked out as the people of the Lamb. And that wherever you go, we can follow and be, uh, and be reminded and be encouraged by the fact that um, the place where you lay us down, the place where you lead us, is ultimately for our good. It may not look like it in the moment, Lord. It may be tough 
may be tough to hear. It may be tough to be led in a certain direction. It may be tough to experience the things that we face in this world. It may be tough in those times where we feel like, Lord, you are far away and it's been a long time since I felt close to God. But Lord, you've told us that you're not far from us. And as we gather around the communion table uh, this morning, Lord, may it be a reminder that this is a place where we can lay, it, we can lay those things down. We can lay down our burdens, we can lay down our fears, we can lay down our anxieties, we can lay down our sin, we can lay down our doubt, and take up the life that has been won for us because of the Lamb who was slain on our behalf. And as we come to the Lamb's table this morning, Lord, I pray that we would be blessed, encouraged, reminded of the goodness of who you are, and rest in the end in your grace and mercy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us online as well. We want to remind you that we have opportunities for, uh, for prayer. Uh, we have um, our prayer partners located over to the left of me, uh, to the right of you, on, uh, that are willing to pray for you as you leave here this morning. We also have uh, prayer cards that are located on the table with a cross on top of it as you leave here this morning. If you have any prayer requests, please write those prayer requests down. We consider it a joy, a privilege, an opportunity to join with you in prayer. So many things are going on in our lives right now. There's all kinds of health issues. We know those things are going on, and we want to be with you. We want to walk alongside you uh, to seek the Lord in those things. And so please write down your prayer requests. Drop them in one of the offering stands as you leave, those black offering stands. We'll make sure they get to the right people. They're prayed over uh, by our staff, by our elders, by our prayer team every single week. And so those are taken uh, very seriously, and we consider it a privilege to join with you in that. So great to see all of you again. Have a great week. Look forward to seeing you uh, next Sunday. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.